Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Sportacost Football Stories podcast. My name is Craig Hansen and today I'm joined by Tom Mallows, a freelance sports journalist and lifelong Everton fan. Tom was a co-founder of Royal Blue Mersey, a Toffees blog on the SB Nation network over a decade ago where he still writes today. Tom's work can also be seen across the football landscape, including in places like the BBC. He's seen it all over the years, the ups, the downs. I can't wait to hear about his experiences today as an Everton fan on the Sportacost football stories podcast don't forget if you enjoy the show we urge you to leave a five-star review on apple podcasts this is extremely important to us we thank you so much in advance for helping our little podcast to grow hey tom how you doing i'm good thank you yeah not so bad thank you very much thank you so much for joining us today tom i can't wait to get into all things Everton with you before we get to the stuff on the pitch right now with Rafa and and with the the recent performances I want to take a little trip down memory lane and I wondered if you could tell myself and the listeners sort of when and how you became an Everton fan sure um well they they say Evertonians are born not manufactured and I think it was it was that was the case with me um my mum and all her family are from Liverpool and they're all big Evertonians um and that was just passed down the generations. My older brother and older sister were, were blues, as were my older cousins. So I wasn't really given much of a choice. I don't remember consciously choosing to support Everton, but I don't remember consciously choosing anyone else either. And I think, you know, had I decided to support anyone else, especially that red lot across the park, I probably would have been cast out oh, of the family. So it was just one of those where, yeah, it was Everton or nothing. And uh, it's been like that ever since. Oh, yeah, a lot of lonely Christmases if you would have done that. Yeah, I would have been in the bottom of the garden, yeah. <laughs> so where did you grow up then, Tom? Because that's what I thought when I first spoke to you. You don't sound like a, a scouser. No, what, what I uh, grew up not too far. It's a place called uh, Ormskirk, which is just north of Liverpool in uh, West Lancashire. Um, but it's only about, if you can get the train, it's only about 25 minutes to, to Goodison. So growing up, I had sort of easy access to get to the game, so I was able to go regularly. Um, but no, uh, I yeah, haven't haven't got the accent. So my mum moved away from from Liverpool um, when she went to university and lost lost her accent slightly. So I didn't quite pick it up when I was growing up. Yeah, I know, I know that um, exact feeling because I'm from a place called Warsaw in the Black Country. I don't know if you know it. We're in the fourth tier, mm-hmm. um, but um, I've. As you can probably tell, I've lost my accent as well from when I went to uni and then sort of living away for years and years. And, and now I don't have a, a big black country accent anymore. So that's why I, I wondered when I heard yours. I thought, oh, um, I was expecting like, you know, Jamie <laughs> Carragher or something. <laughs> yeah. No, no. A lot of people always tell me that. I'm, I'm one of those people who, whoever I'm with for a length, certain length of time, I end up sort of mimicking their accent. So I've sort of got a mishmash of 
different people's accents I've, I've been around over the years. And uh, yeah, I've lost that, uh, lost any Scouse twang that I did have growing up. And with with Ormskirk being quite close, um, with Orms, with Ormskirk being quite close to the the city, what's the football culture like there? I mean, is there a, have they got their own like non league team that maybe I haven't heard of, or do people tend to follow Liverpool, Everton, any other? When you were at school, who were the big teams that everyone was supporting? Oh, it was it was definitely Everton and Liverpool. Yeah, you had a lot of um, a lot of people from Liverpool moved out to to. Um, live in Ormskirk so you, yeah it was really they were the dominant ones ever in Liverpool we had the odd um you know Manchester United uh, not as much Man City in those days but um yeah it was Everton or Liverpool and say so growing up yeah there was there was that rivalry you know we had friends I had friends who were Evertonians there was a group of us and then a large group of Liverpool fans there seemed to be more of them uh typically but yeah it was it was you know we were football mad um it was just an offshoot of of, of Liverpool, really, there's you know, there's a lot of football fans and a lot of Everton and Liverpool fans, particularly. And how did you feel about that rivalry? Because I know that it's very intense there in the city. Being a little tiny bit separated from it, was it still just as intense? The the sort of um, rivalry in the school with like that that split that you sort of talked about, or was it a little bit different being a little bit separated from it? I, it felt just as intense. Um, I don't know whether maybe once you know scores in. In the middle of Liverpool, would, would uh, beg to differ, but it certainly felt that way. Yeah, you know, there, there was there was that real sort of passion, and because we were reasonably close, you know, people were going to the games regularly as well. So, um, yeah, there was definitely that that rivalry um, growing up and in school, and you know, derby days. You know, and luckily, sort of growing up, Evan actually had a half decent record in derbies. So, you know, going into school the next day was actually good fun. You could have a bit of uh banter of everyone so yeah no it, it felt just as in, just as intense um that then it would be in in in, in central liverpool as it as it might not be sort of elsewhere so um yeah he definitely had that that rivalry growing up and um certainly yeah there's some you know our school friends you know we're we're, we're mates but also yeah we were rivals as well when it came to football and how do you feel about it now do you still feel quite passionate about the derby now or when you get older they sort of mellowed out a little bit <laughs> a bit, a bit. I know. I have. Yeah, it's a bit of both, really, because Everton's record uh, has been pretty atrocious uh, recently, and you sort of, you you sort of learn to accept the defeats a little bit more. I think that's you know the sort of polite way of saying it. You know, supporting someone like Everton who haven't been great. You know, if you got yourself worked up every time they lost a game or they lost a derby, then you know you just you'd go mad because it happens quite often. So you learn to accept the defeat. Um, but then on the day, you know, you do, you know, that's, you're still as excited and have that anticipation. You know, when we beat them at Anfield in February for the first time in uh, over 20 years, you know, I was jumping up and down, running around the living room, just as I would have been, you know, yeah. all those years ago. So you do chill out because you just put things a little bit more perspective, you know, and, and real life takes over. You've got more important things to worry about. But in that moment at that time, it's the most important thing um, that matters at that moment. So you're just as passionate. It's maybe sort of afterwards, you know, I might, if you lose, I'll, I'll have a, an hour or so to grumble and then there'll be, you know, real life will hit again and I'll, I'll move on and, and get over it quite quickly. What's your favourite Derby memory? So, I mean, it could be that one that you just mentioned, but do you remember any others from when you were a kid as well? I think you said that, that they were doing quite well in the Derbys back then. Do you have any particular goals that you remember or yes, particular uh, moments that you really loved? Um, yeah, so I grew up so I grew up in the 90s. So my, the first ever Derby game I went to, and one of the, I think it was one of the first ever games I'd gone to, was back in 1994. Um, and Everton were bottom of the league at that point. They hadn't they'd had won one game all season. And it was Joe Royal's first game as manager. Mike Walker had been sacked a couple of weeks ago. And um, we won 2-0. I think Liverpool were doing really well. They were maybe second or third at that point. And uh, Duncan Ferguson scored his first goal um, for Everton in the Gladys Street end, which is where I was. And um, it was a Monday night, sort of November time as well. So it's one of those cold winter's nights. It's a fantastic atmosphere. Um, and I just remember just absolutely loving the atmosphere you know I just started going to the games at that point and I was sort of hooked from then onwards and that still goes down as one of my favourite derby games um another one probably will be that the last win at Anfield in 1999 I went as well I was actually sat with Liverpool fans um <laughs> when when Kevin Campbell scored um 
fairly early on and we held on to win 1-0. And what the great thing was is I remember jumping up and celebrating when um, Campbell scored. And, you, you know, there's certain derby matches you can't really get away with that. You know, you get hooked out quite quickly. But I know they talk about, you say, you know, the, the cliches with Everton and Liverpool, it's the friendly derby. I wouldn't wouldn't go that far. But certainly, you know, if, if you know, an Everton fan in Liverpool and you jump up and celebrate, you're not going to get, most of the time, you're not getting into trouble unless you start really mouthing off and winding up the fans deliberately. There's a sort of, there's tolerance level there. There's an acceptance that, you know, there's going to be, when I've been at Goodison, there's been um, loads of Liverpool fans in, in the Everton then jumping up and down when they scored. And that's that's part of the atmosphere. So as long as you don't push it too far, it is generally tolerated. And I, yeah, I remember jumping up and down when Campbell scored. It's after about five or six minutes and then we were just hanging on for the rest of the game. So I was there sat on my hands um, for, for about 85 minutes. And that was you know brilliant moment I didn't think at the time it would be over 20 years before we'd win there again so uh that's why it's pretty special to me so there were two of my earlier memories um and we've not had that many since I suppose one of the more late, later ones was an FA Cup um replay in 2009 which went to extra time and in the last minute of extra time Dan Gosling um scored right in the last minute at Goodison to send us through and that was that was a good moment as well um but there's been a, they've been few and far between since. So when they do happen, um, you make sure that you make the most of them. And I think I read during my research that Big Dunk is your favourite player, right? Yes, yeah, that's right. Is that? Do you think that that first seeing him score that first goal would that have been a big part of the reason for that, or what was it about him that sort of captured your imagination when you were a kid? Yeah, that was that was definitely it. It was a moment because he he joined on loan from Rangers. Um, a couple of months before then and uh, he said subsequently that he wasn't that fussed he was planning on going back to Rangers afterwards you know it was just a chance to play a bit of regular football but he he fell in fell in love with the club during that loan spell and the fans fell in love with him as well um you know that derby goal you, you score uh, you know a goal against Liverpool and you know you're going to be pretty well set with the fans um yeah and, <laughs> and he scored some fantastic goals that season you know and it was also the year we ended up winning the FA Cup, so you know he's you go down as you know, part of the team that last won a trophy. But it was just that connection he had with the the supporters, that passion and energy that he had. Um, he had the edge to him as well. You know, he got sent off more than a few times, but that was that's part of why we loved him as well. And he's kept that connection now. And when I, you know, when you're growing up, and we had some pretty bad teams in the nineties. The very least you want is you want someone to show that passion and fight for the shirt, and that's what he he had, and he had that connection with the fans and players who have that connection with the supporters. They don't come along that often, um, and he's still got it now. If you if you remember a couple of years ago, he was caretaker manager for a few games when Marcus Silva was sacked, and he was dancing down the touchline and hugging ball boys and jumping. Yeah, um, and you know you don't get that very often, so. Yeah, he was just growing up. He was, and I think whatever age you are, when you first start going to the matches, those players who who were there when at that age, they'll always be pretty special. Um, and that's not the case. I think if you ask anyone of my age or anyone who grew up watching Everton in the '90s, Duncan Ferguson will be up there. And yeah, he still is now. He's my absolute hero now. You know, I'm sure I'd, uh, if I saw him in the street, I'd be in awe of him now. Because um, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. He was a great player growing up, and he's still got that connection with the club now. Yeah, he's still isn't he still there under Rafa? Yeah, though, he's still he? coached. He's been through a few managers. They don't seem to uh, <laughs> uh, have got rid of him just yet. But I think they're too scared to tell him they don't want him to be in the backroom staff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Who's going to tell him? You know, um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember the story of when he some burglars tried to break into his house and uh, I think I did. Maybe can you remind yeah, me? Yes, so they tried. They, I think there was a couple of them tried to break into his house and um, you know, big mistake. And he ended up tackling one of them and sitting on them. <laughs> while the police arrived um and i think yeah so they've regretted it ever since so i think he may have hurt his arm in the the, the scuffle as well so they can't have done their research correctly the uh the would-be burglars because i can't imagine their face when they tried to break into the house and then duncan ferguson was in front of them um i think they immediately regretted that decision so and again that just adds to his you know his story his mystique and why everybody loves him so much because yeah, you don't want to get on the wrong side of him. But at the same time, he's he's a big softie as well. Like, you know, he does a lot of uh, uh he does a lot for the community and and you know, sends a lot of 
video messages to fans and stuff. So yeah, he's he's a bit of an enigma really because he's got that sort of reputation of being a hard man, but also at the same time he's got that soft side as well. And he's a real part of the fabric of the club now in the city, isn't he? So that's yeah, it's a great story to hear. Um, but you mentioned there that sort of when you're in the doldrums a little bit, the the least that you ask for is just a bit of graft. And I wondered about, I, I wanted to get your insight into what the fans sort of expect because it seems like every club they have different kind of the fans have their own philosophy and they have their own sort of um demands like i watched this um this video about the uh boca juniors and river plate rivalry the other day mm-hmm. and the the guys on there were talking that the the boca fans were saying that we don't care about playing good football we just want if the players give everything 100 percent, then we're happy and then the river fans were like we want to play silky football and we don't care if we win as long as the football's good what do you think the Everton philosophy is as a fan? Are you more that fan watching going, look, if you give 100%, if I can tell that you've run your legs off, then you're fine with me? Or are you the one watching going, no, we want a bit of flair and quality? What kind of, where do Everton fans go on that sort of spectrum, do you think? I think definitely leaning towards, you know, they're giving the 100%, working hard. You know, Evertonians want, they want to see good football. Um, you know, they were famously known as the school of science um, in sort of in the, in the mid part of last century, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s, you know, because they played this this great brand of football. But at the same time, um, they want to see passion for the shirt. They want to play quick, intense, moving the ball forward quickly. And they will accept um, players' limitations as long as they're giving them all for the shirt, you know, if the, the players maybe who had more individual talent, but if they're not seen to be giving everything, if they're, they're shirking out of tackles or they're not really running or they're giving up, they won't be given as much leeway as players who maybe aren't as naturally talented, but they will be seen to give everything for the shirt. And you see that if you if just Goodison, the atmosphere at Goodison, Goodison at its best is when the crowd are really on top of the, of the players and the players are responding, they're flying into tackles, they're pushing forward, you know, real fast, intense football. And that's sort of the minimum minimum that they ask, really. So, yeah, there probably is some similarities with... Um, Bocca, with Bocca, Bocca maybe, yeah, with the Bocca, yeah, Bocca fans. Yeah. You know, Bocca... Because um, obviously Liverpool as well, because of their success they've had, they're a bit more of a, a global club. They have more... Um, global fans coming in so it's a slightly different crowd there um, Everton um, tend to be a more local crowd you know, David Moyes' famous phrase you know the people's club you, you sense that you know at Goodison so um, yeah if, if you ask any player who signs, signs for Everton you say you just you give you give your all um, and you know, Evertonians will give forgive you for mistakes or, or, or not being quite uh, up to a certain level because there is a minimum there um, and that's that's giving everything for the shirt and working hard. Yeah, I think I feel the same. That's um, that's sort of my philosophy on it as well. If I go to a game, I like to see the players working hard, running, pressing. Yeah. If, you, if you're lazy, I just can't, I can't abide that. And even and and also being brave, like you said, in terms of getting the ball forward, it doesn't matter if you lose the ball, but you just try and do something good, try and get the ball forward, try and progress then um, I'll give you a lot of leeway sort of thing as a fan. Yeah. But if you just, um, you know, if you just waltzing around, not not putting any any effort, then I can't really stand that. But it's, every every club and every fan has their different philosophies. That's what's so interesting about it. But we, we spoke a little bit about the atmosphere then at the Goodison. Can you tell me a little bit about this um, Bramley Moor Dock project? Because... I've got to be honest, obviously, as a non-Everton fan, I don't really know much about it. I just know that they're building a new stadium. Can you tell us about that? When's it going to happen? Where's it going to be? What's the sort of reaction? Sure, yeah. So the, the building works just started, So and I think it's a three-year build. So the plan is to be in, I think, the start of the 2023-24 season. Um, I think the best way to, is to, to go right back to the beginning, and, and the Everton have been trying to move stadiums for over 20 years really going back to sort of the mid 90s there was an acceptance that um Goodison perhaps wasn't which wasn't right for, for redevelopment it was controversial at the time um because supporters felt that there wasn't really enough effort to, done to really investigate whether Goodison could could be redeveloped because moving moving away from such an, an old historic stadium is a really big big moment and it's part of the club's identity and it's not something you want to give up lightly um but as time progressed it did become apparent that 
it was too landlocked. It's complete on three sides. It's completely locked by dense terraced housing. So you, you just isn't the space to build. You can't go any higher either because of, you know, regulations, right to like regulations now. So and it would take too long to redevelop piece by piece. You know, it would just be too expensive. So there was there was growing acceptance that we had to um, we had to move. Um, now, there was a, a chance to move to the docks initially, a place called King's Dock in the, in the early 2000s. Um, but Everton had to pull out because they didn't have the money. And it's where now the, the Liverpool arena is. Um, that's on that that plot. And then there was a controversial move in 2007 to move out to Kirby, um, which is to Kirby, sorry, which is um, outside the city limits. So there was a huge protest against that because it felt as though it was out of sight, out of mind. It was taking Everton out of the, out of the city of Liverpool. It was going to be sort of one of these sort of identical stadiums on a retail park next to a Tesco. It just wasn't, it wasn't, didn't seem to be the right move and that collapsed. And then for a long time, we were struggling to find an alternative site. And then when Farhad Mashiri took over in 2016, his, his immediate priority was to find a site for, for a new ground. Um, and this land at Bramley Moor Dock came up. It's a little bit further down from where King's Dock is and where the Albert Dock and a lot of the tourist attractions um, are. And it's been disused for a long time. The dock, the, the water's still there, but the chance to move... I think for the Evertonians, would, if they're going to leave Goodison Park, there's only a few places they'd want to move. And one of those is is to the docks, which is you know intrinsically linked with the history of the city. You know, it's, it's growth as, as a... A global city um was linked linked with the docks so yeah and you know the chance to form part of the the waterfront and the skyline you know it's a, too big an opportunity to turn down um it's taken a long time because we've had so many failed moves they've tried to make everything every step um has done meticulously and it's going to take a lot of work because the, at the moment they're draining the dock um, in filling it with sand. You know, there's a lot of preparatory work before they can even start actually building the thing. So um, that's they're doing that at the moment. The proper building work will start next year. Um, and I think it'll be 48,000 or maybe 40, 45,000. So it's going to be, yeah, and it looks, the plans look fantastic. You know, Yeah, I saw a picture on Google. It, it does look amazing. Yeah. It looks like it's going to be really cool. Yeah, it does. It's going to be unique. Um, you know, they worked really hard with the supporters. Um, the designer is a, a, an American guy called Dan Meese or Dan Meese, and um, he he came across to Liverpool and held work- workshops with the supporters to really get an idea of what they wanted um, from the new ground. And, and part of it was trying to take as much as the atmosphere as Goodison as possible. You, you're not going to have everything because part of why Goodison is it, it is what it is is because it's an older ground. It's tight. It's cramped. It's right on top. You know, to have more comfortable seats and, and you're going to have to ha- have things a little bit bigger. But, you know, they've worked really hard to try and get you know, some of the designs of Goodison in, in, in the new ground. Um, and it will be an absolute game changer for Everton, if, if, you know, once, once they move there, because it doesn't matter how far we progress on the pitch, which we aren't doing at the moment, but there's always going to be that ceiling because as much as I love Goodison, it's it's too old and it's not, it's not got the facilities for modern football anymore. So if we are going to progress and and fulfil the ambitions that we want, which is you know a team that's qualifying for Europe regularly and winning trophies, you, you need to be in a, in a bigger ground that can help generate that um, extra revenue. So it really is. It could be a real turning point um, for Everton, and you know it's going to be really a really sad day when we leave Goodison. And if you've not been, I'd really urge you to go. Uh, to, to at least once just to experience it it's not the most comfortable um you know there's cramped wooden seats and the views on <laughs> it, but you know the atmosphere there you, there isn't that many stadiums like it certainly not in the in the in the premier league so yeah it'll be a really sad day really goodison but at the same time when we you know run out on, on our new stadium on the on the banks of the royal blue mersey um you know that'll be a special day as well and, and a real i think turning point for the club I'll have to try and get down there while I still can because there's a few grounds like that that I never went to. I obviously I, I definitely never went to Highbury because um, that was that went when I was only a teenager, and then um, the Berlin ground went a few years ago, didn't it? So I'll have to try and get um, get up there. Yeah, I don't know who. Uh, maybe I could. I've got a few friends who are Aston Villa fans because mm-hmm. obviously from being around here, so maybe we could try and get an away day going. Um, but to go from the future back to the past a little bit, I wanted to talk about some of the some of the great managers. 
during your during our lifetime, and I guess um, where better to start than Walter Smith and uh, his tragic passing in um, last week, I think it was. I just wondered um, if you could um, say a few words about sort of the impact that he had when you were watching and, and how would you sort of sum him up as a manager and a man? Yeah, I've actually been thinking that quite a lot, say, since the news of his passing, um, thinking about those the years he was in charge of Everton and he was... He won't go down as you know the, the one of the best periods in Everton's history, but he it was really it was eventful and it was still a really difficult time. He took charge in the summer of 1998, um, and the previous season we just stayed up on goal difference in the Premier League, so it wasn't you know we didn't have the greatest of teams. He was and he was given some money to spend, but then later that year it turns out the money he would spent was the banks, and the banks wanted some of it back, so. The then chairman Peter Johnson infamously, infamously sold Duncan Ferguson behind Walter Smith's back in order to uh, appease the banks, and you know, Walter Smith was left furious with that, and understandably so. So that that summed up his tenure really. He was constantly trying to build teams, but then he'd had to sell players at the same time, so he could never really have any consistency. Um, the football wasn't great at times, so there was there was a, a time sort of at the end of the the nineteen ninety eight ninety nine season and the nineteen ninety thousand season. We had he bought Kevin Campbell uh, on loan and he scored a heap of goals to keep us up at the end of that season. And he played up front with, with Francis Jeffers, who just emerged from the academy, and things seemed to click. Um, and we had you know, we had to, we had Don Hutchison, John Collins, Nick Barnby in midfield. So things were really looked promising, and we had a decent season that year. But then in the summer, again, he had to sell um, Hutchison left, John Collins left, but Nick Barnby famously across the park to Liverpool. So he was constantly sort of chasing his tail, trying to to rebuild. And it, so it was a difficult time. Um, and I think when he did leave um, in March of 2002, it probably was the right decision because we looked to be sliding down the table. Um, but even then, there was never, you know, the, the, the fans never truly turned on Smith. I think that there was never really... From, from what I recall, chance for him to go or any real anger, because I think there was an understanding that of the difficulties that he had to deal with. He had one hand tied behind his back, even though it probably was the right decision for him to check, to, to, to leave at that time. Um, and he was just a bit, yeah, a very dignified, honourable man. You know, he um, he represented the club well, um, and you know, with a sort of a quiet dignity, and he was through a very difficult period for the club. Um, he'll always get obviously, obviously be remembered more for his time at Rangers because of the the success he had for two spells. But I think he will be remembered fondly by by Everton fans for what was you know a difficult time for the club. Um, but he kept he kept us going, um, and he served the club well. And he certainly never disrespected the club, and I think he he had kind words to say once he left us as well. And and there's reports that once he told he'd been told he'd been sacked, he then sat with. Um, Chairman Bill Kenwright and helped them pick the successor and he played a role in, in, in recommending David Moyes to come and succeed him and we all know what David Moyes did um, in those years afterwards so yeah he, he just comes across as a really decent guy and obviously very sad news um, of his passing last week. That's a perfect segue into David Moyes. I've, I've got two questions for you on Moyes. I mean first of all how well remembered is he? I'd like to think amazingly so because during sort of my era of watching football, I think that's one of the the best like extended periods of time a manager's had at a club of like I would say continued success pretty much. Um, but I wondered how well is he remembered by fans, and also how do Everton fans react to him sort of you know rising from the ashes with West Ham? Because as, as a neutral with sort of no skin in the game, like I'm really happy to see him. You know, after he after he went to Man United, you know, and that. Sometimes nowadays that's just sort of a place where careers die, isn't it? Like manager or player just go in there is poison chalice. And and then he had his time at Sociedad and I think Sunderland and his first spell at West Ham. And it looked like he was, you know, really on that slide. Like it looked like he was headed for championship level soon. And now look at what he's doing at West Ham. I mean, as a neutral, I think it's it's hard not to feel happy for him when you see him jumping up and down on the sidelines smiling. As an Everton fan, do you have the same sensation? I do, yes. I, I, I don't know if all the Evertonians can speak say that way, but I, you know, I'm really glad to see he's got um, got back to his, something like his best because I always thought he was a, he was a great manager. Um, he where I don't, I don't dread to think where Everton would would be without David Moyes because 
he managed to turn them from a team that spent previous sort of five, ten years before he arrived, scrabbling to stay in the league, to a team that was regularly in the top six, seven, qualifying for Europe, but all the time hardly spending any money. You know, with everything was so skint during that that time. He was really having to scrimp and save. And it did cost us a few times because I just felt if we had a little bit extra cash at certain moments, we really could have pushed on. You know, we got to that glass ceiling trying to get fourth place. Um, he did an absolutely fantastic job. Um, and Everton fans understood when Manchester United came calling. We always knew that um, Sir Alex Ferguson was a fan and thought that when he did go, that Moyes would um, be up there as one of the candidates to replace him. What left... Everton fans frustrated was the way he seemed to be he behaved in the first few months as Manchester United manager. He seemed to talk down to Everton and he tried to sign Leighton Baines and Marwan Fellaini over the summer and made some ridiculously low bids and basically inferred that, you know, Everton should just let them go for the good of their career. And so, sort of things that had another manager said that to him when he was Everton manager, he would have really railed against that. Um, and he, also, he did end up signing Fellaini, but but Bain stayed, so that did sour the relationship for a few years. Um, but as time gone on, I can understand that. That is a bit it, annoying. It, it I didn't felt really as know though that. you know, it, you know, we'd given this huge reception when he'd left uh, on his final game, uh, and it felt as though you know he'd suddenly. But I, I I'd be interested to see what he said because I do think those first few months of the job, he maybe uh, he well he conceded he definitely made mistakes and I think the way he approached certain things he probably thinks he could have done differently and I certainly think that is one of those um, but as time's gone on I think things have softened and I think we've looked at certainly how the team struggled with money in the past you know five or six years and realised what a good job he did there was probably time for him to go because maybe things had got a little bit stale um, but certainly you know I he was linked with a return actually. Um, when Marcus Silva was sacked and a big group of Evertonians were dead against it, um, didn't want him coming back. And you can understand why, because at that point he was, um, as you say, he'd, he'd struggled at all these uh, all these clubs at Sociedad. Um, and Sunderland, you know, that looked, he just looked as though he was on his way down. So you can understand why the fans didn't want him back. But he's gone back to West Ham. And that, yeah, I'm really chuffed to see, because I always felt he was a great manager. And actually, he's applied the same template, really, he had at Everton at West Ham. You look at, some of the players they've got, you know, Suchek in midfield, you know, he's very Marwan Fellaini-like. Um, he's got the big striker up front. Um, you know, he had he had some decent strikes at Evan Yakubu being one of them. Using his full-backs in the same way, sort of good up-and-down full-backs. Yeah, you sign from the championship and you bring through, you know, the brilliant set pieces, both attacking and defending. You know, um, so... Small squad as well. He likes to have a small group of players that sort of same team every week. Yeah. Yeah, a real sort of close bond. You hear them, you hear them speak, um, and the way they talk about that—that that real sort of team spirit, that sort of um, yeah, us against them mentality. He's, yeah, he's done a brilliant job. It just seems to have clicked. It's the right sort of club for him. Maybe uh, Manchester United was just just too big. Um, yeah, but I think he's doing great things, and I, I think it'll be interesting to see whether he's got a bit of money to spend in January. Because what, as I said, uh, what let him down a lot of times was he, he never had any money with Everton, so. At times when maybe we could have done with an extra strike or just a few extra bodies in the January window, we didn't. And so we fell away and we missed out in the top four a few times. Um, but if he's got a bit of cash to maybe strengthen the squad in January, he really can, I think he can do some great stuff at West Ham. Um, certainly, I think, looking at the, the league this year, fourth place is up for grabs. Um, it's whether, as you say, he likes that small squad, whether they can maintain it throughout the seasons. That's where I think if he can bring some more players in January, he'll do you'll do a good job. So, yeah, there's sort of a, what might have been, you know, had he come back for that second spell, but uh, I think it was the right decision um, and I'm just glad yeah, that he is doing well because I always thought he was a good manager and as time goes on, I think most Evertonians will, will look back um, at his time with, with fondness and, and recognise just what he did for the club because we, we had no money and if you drop out the Premier League at that point and you can't afford to get back up, then you could be stuck down there for you know a long, long time. Look at the look at a club like Leeds or even teams like Sheffield Wednesday being down there for a long time. Suddenly dropped down to League One. Yeah, Forest, yeah, they've been out twenty odd years. So you know, you drop out, um it's very hard to come back. So um yeah, he did a fantastic job with with very little resources. Well to go from two managers who will probably go down in the sort of you know, in the good books 
to two that are maybe a little bit more controversial. <laughs> uh, I want to come on to Carlo Ancelotti first, but before we do that, we're going to take one very quick break. And we're back. So, Tom, um, how surprised were you, first of all, when Carlo Ancelotti departed? And how annoyed were you by how it happened? Very surprised and very annoyed. Because uh, <laughs> in short, it, it seemed to come out of nowhere, really. You know, he, he talked so much about how much he enjoyed being part of a long-term project and how he was settled uh, in the area and how he wanted to really, having moved across lots of super clubs for two, three years at a time, wanted to put down some roots and seem really committed. And then all of a sudden, the whole deal was done within the space of two or three days and, and he was off. Um, so that was really, really disappointing because um, obviously it was it was a real coup for Everton to get someone like Carlo Ancelotti in the first place. And we felt as though that he really bought into it. You know, he seemed to really embrace the challenge uh, and seemed to be ready and, and Evertonians you know embraced him as well and were really excited so they, they felt really let down and, and I think understandably so and I think the board have a right to feel let down as well because they um, backed him as much as he could in the transfer market he signed the players that he wanted to you know that the, the transfer policy at the club supposedly is to bring in young players but they allowed him to bring in the players he wanted you know Hamas Rodriguez uh, and Alan in particular so, yeah, it just felt really, really let down. And interestingly, I actually read his book, um, Quiet Leadership, while he was Everton manager. And it did, it was a bit revealing because it's, he's a very good man manager. Um, and that not just applies to players, it applies to, you know, executives. He had to, he's had to deal with some fairly feisty owners and chairmen over the years. And I think it applies to the fans as well. And I get the impression that a lot of the stuff he was saying to the fans was what we wanted to hear because he knew that if you have the fans on side, then your life as a manager is easier as well. And I'm not convinced whether he was exactly completely truthful with. Yeah. Hand, um, he's a good politician, isn't he? Yeah, he's a very good. Exactly. Yeah, that's he's a very good politician. He play. He he knows how to deal with with every. know the right things to say and dealing with people, but also there has to be a bit of realist realism as well. You know, Real Madrid, Everton. Yeah, <laughs> you know we can't. You know, if, if Real Madrid come calling, he has got a an affinity with the club, and he maybe felt there was uh, some unfinished business there. So you can't really be too annoyed. Have to accept that. You know, he's not he's not a lifelong Evertonian like us. You know, when Real Madrid come calling, you know, pretty much ninety nine percent of people would would jump at that chance. So it, it's really disappointing, um, and we just have to accept it. And it just yeah it left a sour taste because you know we felt that. You know, he was really here for the long term and could have, could have really done something. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to, like you said, you have to understand it, sort of take yourself out of it. But it is nonetheless annoying, and, and as mm. an Everton fan, it must have been very annoying. But was it when the fans were already sort of a little bit peeved about that whole situation, and then you hear the news that Rafa Benitez is the new manager? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was your initial reaction to that? When the rumours first started, I just thought there's no way the club would do it. No way. It's just because just, just, it's there's being a former Liverpool manager and there's also being a former Liverpool manager who openly looked to goad Evertonians and wind <laughs> the opposition up. And, and, you know, he had his history where he referred to us as a small club. But it was just, you know, what were what <laughs> what are they thinking? Um, and it was the reaction I was worried with. I wasn't totally against it you know I could understand the logic behind it because he's he is a good coach he's also wanted the job he knows the area he knows the club and what the fans want um and he was prepared to work you know we've been restricted with financial fair play um over the summer so we didn't have money much money to spend but he was willing to take that on my fear is that there's a certain there's a group of Evertonians who, who just won't have him just won't won't accept it because of that Liverpool link and as long as we're winning games and playing well, it's okay. But my fear is if things turn... And they already have started to a little and bit. And they have started to. It could get fairly toxic fairly quickly and then we would be back to, to square one. And that that is my fear. Um, but having said that, um, and I've spoken to you know, a few Liverpool fans who, who had and a few Newcastle fans as well, and what they said, what Benitez does is when he's your manager, he will do everything to help your your club uh, even if that includes you know winding up the opposition so that's why when he was Liverpool manager he was understandably having a pop at Everton because that's what he wanted to do for the best at Liverpool and he was doing that as Newcastle manager and that's what he'll do 
do for Everton as well. So that that's all part of he was just doing doing his job, um, and you know everything he's done and said so far, and he, and he's spoken about the need for. We touched an earlier. I said about you know what Evertonians like that sort of fast, committed style of play. He said that as well. He's lived in in on Merseyside or in the northwest for for a long time, so he knows Evertonians and he knows what they want, and he wants that style of football. And he's openly said you know how, how important it is to have the fans on side. So he is aware of it. Um, and also he must he must be determined to take the job because there's a lot of people who would not want to take that hassle on. Um, so I think he's actually done a decent job given the circumstances. Um, it's just, you know, we so we lost three in a bounce and it got a little bit tetchy. We were a little bit better against Tottenham last weekend. Um, but if it gets a little bit, goes a bit south uh, over the winter, yeah, it could get a bit a bit nasty again. But um, I've no, no complaints so far. You know, I think he's done a decent job given the circumstances. Now he's here. He needs to be given a chance because he's not really had any money to spend. We can't keep chopping and changing managers. There's no obvious replacement if he does go. So we just need to give him a chance, accept this year as a transitional year and then give him a summer, hopefully next year, where he can have a full summer with the players and hopefully bring some uh, new signings in and we'll see how we go next year. And I think he spent pretty much no money on players that um, he bought pretty much to to deliver, like you said, that style of play. So he brought in Damari Gray, Townsend, sort of fast, nippy wingers that he trusts. Mm-hmm. And uh, and like I said, he was going really, really well. I know form mm-hmm. dipped a little bit, but things move fast in football nowadays, don't they? All it takes is a few um, a few losses. Like like I saw the, um, the the Dean Smith thing at Villa, and I thought that's crazy to me. Like, are, are they worried they're going down? I mean, just calm down. It's eleven games in. Like you're gonna be, they're gonna be fine. I think he could have got them to still maybe Europa League even if they just relax, but. You know, it gets really toxic really quick. Like you said, if Everton lose two or three games in a row more, then, uh, you know, they're going to be calling for his head, aren't they? Especially because of the Liverpool link. Yeah, yeah. I'd say it's the, um, the Merseyside derby at Goodison at the start of next month. And that will be interesting because, uh, you know, if Liverpool can wave a big win, then, you know, there'll be, you know, the shouts, you know, shouts about Agent Benitez and all things like that. So that <laughs> that could be fun. But then again, you know, he, we we beat them, and you know Benitez gets one over over Liverpool. Then you know, Everton is suddenly warned for him again. So yeah, that is a big game coming up. Um, but as you say, yeah, he spent hardly any money, and also he's had we've been really badly hit with injuries as well. You know, Calvert Lewin's been out since August. Um, Decore is been our best midfielder. He's been out for the past month uh, with a broken foot, uh, and Yeri Mino, our best defender, has been out for the past few weeks as well. So that's the entire spine of the side. So you take the best spine out of any team you're going to struggle when you've got a really small squad like Everton have as well it's, it's even worse so he's been a little bit unlucky I think get our best players back and you know we will have a decent team particularly Calvert-Lewin because that's Townsend and Gray coming in wingers who can deliver the ball into the box that's part of the reason why they brought them in so he's hopefully not too far away from return um, and things hopefully will pick up then um, it's just, you know, say we've got a small squad and injuries. If you hit, if they hit, then yeah, you're always going to struggle. So to touch on the players then, uh, from, away from the managers of the players, one player in particular, I wanted to ask about Tom Davies because um, ever since he sort of came on the scene, I've always had high hopes for him because you always like to see, as a neutral, I think, you know, the local lads playing for their local team and I always sort of hope that they do well. Do you think he's reached his ceiling or is there more to come from him? Can he get to a high level? He's still only 23. Um, what do you think's the future for him? Do you think he could, could he be a sort of one club man? Could he grow into being a, a really important player? I know, I know he, it's not like he never plays now, but mm-hmm. it feels like he hasn't quite reached that potential that he has. What, what do you, what do you see in his future? He's, he's one of the players who, uh, is most talked about by Everton fans because, as you say, yeah, we love to see academy players. Because you must want him to succeed, right? The yeah, fans, I'm is, sure you want him to. Desire to succeed. Um, sometimes it's, it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes academy players are given more support, but also at the same time there's greater expectation and they often become the target of frustration as well. Um, and Tom Davis, I have a degree of sympathy because... Um, I think he's played on, I think it's five managers and two caretakers in, in five years. You know, when you're just breaking into the team, that is very disruptive. Um, now, now you could point out, say, someone like Dominic Calvert-Lewin's the same and he, like how he's progressed. Um, I also think 
didn't you think we scored a brilliant goal against Manchester City um, and he just burst through when he ran pretty much from the halfway line and finished off and that almost became a bit of a curse because it raised expectations and he just doesn't seem to have kicked on since then. The team has struggled as well, which doesn't help. Um, and he does become the target sometimes, uh, rightly or wrongly, of, the, of the, the fans' frustrations. I think the main the main issue is we're just not sure what type of midfielder he is. You know, is he a defensive midfielder? Is he box to box? Is he attacking? He just he doesn't seem to offer that much going forward. Doesn't score assist that much. Um, but he doesn't seem to be that sort of defensive N'Golo Kante type player either. So he's he's not really he struggled to, to to really find that place in the in the team. Um, I have a degree, another degree of sympathy is sometimes he, he will look to play the ball forward. And you take, you're talking before about how you don't want players playing it safe. But sometimes the players who try and be progressive and play the ball forward are more to give the ball away and then end up getting stick from the crowd. So it's, it's a real tough one. I just think, as you say, at 23, he should be really kicking on now. Um, he's experienced, he's made over 100 appearances. And I'm just not sure whether he's. He's got enough to be to be a long term fixture in the team, which is a shame because so you want the want their own and maybe alone, maybe just chat stick, maybe a bit of uh, some new surroundings, playing week in week out, um, try something different might might benefit benefit him. Um, I remember Leon Osman, another player who came through the academy. He he broke into the team fairly late as well, but he he'd spent sort of six months on loan at Derby the previous season, did really well, and then he followed up that momentum and. and broke into the Everton team the following year. So maybe, maybe alone would help. The problem is we've got such a small squad, we can't afford to let anyone go at the moment. But maybe next summer, um, look to loan him out and see. But see, 20 to 24, yeah, it's fairly ruthless business football. And if you've not hit you know, the standard expected by that point, I'm not sure. It's very rare these days for players to really push on after that age. So um, yeah, he he's one that does have a question mark over his future, which is a shame, as you say, because... You love to see academy players you know, come through and, and, and represent the team. It is a shame, but as you said, it's sort of um, nowadays, you know, you're washed up at 28, aren't you? So yeah. <laughs> time is of the essence. It's ruthless. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's fans, uh, again, rightly or wrongly, are, they, they judge a player and that's it, as you say. Yeah, And, and the businesses as well, you know, there's such high stakes for managers. They can't afford to take risks on young players and give them their experience. You know, if you don't, you get a few games, you don't cut it. The manager will take you out of the team because, you know, as you say, look at Dean Smith, he's lost five games and now he's out. He's done, he's done a brilliant job. Um, I know the struggle formed this calendar year, but that did seem very harsh to me, but that's, that's the, the ruthless business that, that the Premier League is. So that there's, it's sink or swim. It is ruthless for managers or players but who would you say then is the most important player in the squad right now who who is Oof. not even necessarily the fan favorite but the person that just in the cold light of day you think we really the first name on the team sheet we really need this person to play oh that's a tough one it um... is right it is tough <laughs> and tough to only pick one if you could pick a couple maybe it was it, probably a choice between two, it'd be between Richarlison and Dominic Calvert-Lewin, and I'd probably choose Richarlison just because he can play up front on his own and he can play either side. And um, while Calvert-Lewin finishes the, you know, he scores the goals in the box, I think for his all-round play, Richarlison really can lift the team and, and bring it up a level in terms of performance. You know, we really missed him the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, he's really competitive. He plays on the edge. He winds up opposition fans. He gets involved. Um, yeah, he's just a really talented player, uh, and he's you know he's been fantastic since he joined us. And I think there's an acceptance that he may he's not going to be around forever. Um, maybe even next summer, he, he might be one of those that's, that's sold on for big money. But I'd say him not just because his own ability and his versatility, but the fact that when he's in the team, he just he creates chances for us. He just drags the team off a level. Um, but Cavalier is real close behind because you can have all the great approach play that you like but if you haven't got someone to put the ball in the back of the net then it's all for nothing so you know he'd be really close as well and he's another one of the reasons why we've we've struggled these past couple of weeks because he's not been in the team so I guess given the up and down nature of the season then so far there's been some I mean I thought an amazing start I thought Damari Gray was like a revelation Andros mm-hmm. Towns I couldn't believe that that for like two million and a free I think those two yeah. were I was like Benitez really is a genius. This is going so well. It's dropped off a little bit. It's a bit up and down. 
and there's been some issues, like you said, with injuries. What are your sort of expectations then for the season? What what what's sort of like a realistic goal that most Everton fans will be happy with? I think we've we have to really have to lower our expectations this year. You know, the past few years pushing for Europe had to be sort of a minimum really. And we did that for much of last year. But given the the change in manager, the small squad, the lack of money, um, we maybe have to temper that this year and accept that maybe mid table top ten um is, is what we can hope for, which is, you know, disappointing and it's it seems um very down to sort of lower your expectations like that and it's not particularly exciting oh we're just going to finish 10th this year you know but um i just feel and it makes it less painful in the end though yeah well yeah true (laughs) every fan knows that um yeah don't get don't aim too high you'll never be disappointed but i just think we have to be patient because um the financial issues we a few years ago was the summer of 2017 when ron was in charge he, he, he spent about 200 odd million and the majority of it was completely wasted. Uh, we ended up with a worse team. He was sacked. Some allies came in. We've had, and we, we've been counting the cost of that ever since. You know, our owner wants to spend, but because we've made some so many losses over the past few years, but not had European football to compensate in terms of the extra income, we're completely hamstrung. So, you know, we spent 1.7 million in the summer. So we can't really have too high expectations. I think maybe the start we made perhaps got people a little bit excited, but I think the past few weeks is a bit more realistic of where we are. We're going to have an up and down year, depending also depending on injuries. If we can push for, you know, top seven, then, uh, yeah, I think that would be, you know, a decent season. Um, I don't think there's much between the sides, um, sort of below, obviously the top three, and then there's, obviously, someone like West Ham are doing really well, Man United are struggling, but I don't think there's much between, say, Arsenal, Tottenham, even Leicester and Everton, uh, they, maybe they have a bigger squad, but certainly on our day, with all players fit, we can compete with anyone. It's just the injuries that I think might cost us. If we get lucky and once these players come back and we have a, a season, you know, we're not in Europe, we're already out of the League Cup, so we won't have too many games. If, if we have our best team for most of the rest of the season, then yeah, we have got a chance maybe sneaking a European place, but I just think safely mid-table, top 10, maybe a cut run, and then we rebuild again next year, which sounds really boring. <laughs> People are saying that you know you, that's not very ambitious and limiting it. But I think you also have to be realistic as well and take a long-term approach. We've had a few years where we've spent very recklessly and now we're paying the price. This is a chance to try and reset, get the finances in order while the stadium's being built. And then hopefully next summer we can you know, have a bit more targeted recruitment and find those, those key areas in the team and push on from there. But it's good to be a realist because, like you said, you'll be less disappointed in the end. That way, that's that's always my approach as well. That's what supporting Everton's been like for the past twenty years. To say like, <laughs> yeah, you can't get too upset when they lose because it happens so often. You've got to have realistic expectations. Otherwise, you just you wouldn't be able to cope. You know. Well, Tom, to go from the players on the pitch right now to a few players from the past, we're going to do a little bit of trivia. But before okay. we do that, we're going to take one very quick break. And we're back. So, Tom, at the end of every episode, we like to do a little thing called Do You Know Your Heroes? And we're going to have eight questions for you here. There are a lot to do with sort of record holders, um, sort of numbers, dates, that kind of thing. But but the most important thing is if you can give me the, the player in question. If in the, in those cases where it's a player or a year, you will get one point. Um, well, don't, don't don't worry too much. Some of them are a bit ridiculous and sort of challenging, and some of the other ones I think are going to be pretty basic for you. But let's see how you get on. So, question number one: Having done so on five occasions, when did Everton last win the FA Cup? Oh, that's good on to start. Nineteen ninety-five. Correct. Nineteen ninety-four, ninety-five. One <laughs> point in the bag. Which player has made the most appearances for Everton in all competitions? Uh, Neville Southall. Correct. Uh, you have the point, but I don't suppose you want to have a guess at how many in all oh, comps. God. It's a lot. <laughs> 710. Oh, very close. 751. It's a ridiculous amount. That is. Between, <laughs> between 1981 and 1998. On the other hand, though, which player has made the most European appearances in the club's history? 
Oh. Nah, mm, that's... Uh, <laughs> this is a tough one. I have to say this one surprised me. A new, I'm going to say Leighton Baines. Close, actually. Right era. It was Tim Howard oh, who made yeah. 28 between 2006 and 2016. That surprised me, actually, because I don't... Probably I'm just way off here, because I don't... Obviously, I'm not an Everton fan, but I know that... Um, didn't you have, was it in the 70s or 80s, this great era... Yeah. Um, you know, when you were winning a lot of stuff, I just assumed there would have been some guys that I haven't heard of from the past who were playing in UEFA Cup every time or European Cup. But, but no, Tim Howard is yeah. the is the holder. Well, one of the, the reasons was um, when Everton won the league a couple of times in in the mid eighties, there was the European back. so they were denied going to the European Cup twice. Um, so that sort of held. So that was why yeah, the numbers are limited. Um, so yeah, that really counted against them. I should have remembered that because um, one of the first episodes we ever did was with a guy called Phil Roberts. He's from across the park. Yeah. I don't know if you know those guys. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was on to talk Liverpool. And I asked him about the rivalry and and why it's so intense. And one of his theories was that one of the several things is that, like you said, there was a time where you won um, the league, but you, you couldn't qualify for Europe because of the band that sort of, not to blame Liverpool for that, but they were involved in the incident. It was the Heysel incident, right, that yeah. created that ban. So, uh, oh, that makes complete sense then. So, yeah, that, that explains probably why those guys of that era didn't get um, all those appearances. And in the end, it was the Moyes era, I think. Um, like you said, Baines, Howard, all those guys. But being the goalie, I suppose, makes sense. Yeah, Howard would have been uh, on the on the sheet more often than not. So two out of three. Um, but which player remains the club's all-time top goal scorer in all competitions? Sure, sure it has to be Dixie Dean. It is correct. Don't suppose you know how many. doesn't matter, but just... Ooh. I don't think. Did he... 400? <laughs> Very close. 383. Oh, between 1925 and 1937. So that's one of those ones where you're sort of like, um, you know, that record has been hanging on in there for a long time. Is someone ever going to beat that? Who's the candidate? Could Calvert-Lewin be the guy to beat that? <laughs> You'd need to play for a long time to beat that, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it would be a record that will stand pretty much. He also he scored 60 league goals in one season as well, and that's a record that is unlikely to Oh, yeah. I think that's borderline impossible to put a break. I mean, maybe because it's all comps, like, he could break this one. Um, If he played, like you said, and stayed all the way till he was about 38 or something and played all the cup games and stuff, he could break it. But, but yeah, 60 um, 60 goals in one uh, one league season. I mean, that's never happening in the Premier League, is it? I don't think. Um, Okay, question five. Who is the club's record signing? Uh... Gilfie Sigurdsson. It is. I don't suppose you know how much. Is it 45 million? These ones were always disputed, but from the, my sources, it's 40 million. <laughs> 40. From Swansea City in 2017. But Still there's point. always variables with that. But you have the point nonetheless. Four out of five. Question six. In 1986, which then Everton player came in second for the Ballon d'Or, losing out to the Ukrainian Igor Belenov? So, 1986, Everton player finished second place in the Ballon d'Or. Nearly won the Ballon d'Or that year. Gary Lineker. Very good. I thought this one would catch you out because he was only there for one season. Only there for one year. Yeah, and then he and then he went. I think it's to Barca. So um, that's it. Exactly, it was. He went to Barca after that. I never knew he finished second in the Ballon d'Or that year. Uh, He. It's understandable when you hear the stats. He scored 38 goals in 52 appearances in all competitions in that 85, 86 season. Before, I mean, you can see why Barca came in for him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, yes, yeah, second place in the Ballon d'Or. And I have to be honest, I'd never heard of uh, Igor Belenov, who actually won it. Um, I think he played for Ke- D- Dinamo Kiev, were really big at the time. I love looking into those sort of stats because you, you see how different, you know, teams that you see in the Europa League and stuff now, how huge they were back yeah. in the day. Mm-hmm. So cool. Uh, but yeah, five out of six, Gary Lineker. Um, question seven. Who is the longest serving manager in the history of Everton Football Club? Gee, uh, don't think it was Moyes. Um, I 
Oh, I'd have to go Moyes, but I don't think it is. Unlucky, that's what I thought. But, you know, I assumed it would be Moyes because he was there for a long... How long was he there, David Moyes? 13 years, I think. It's a lo- It was a long time, but apparently um, Harry Catterick... Oh, Catterick, yes. Ugh. ...is the longest-serving manager in the history of the club, but it's got to be close. I mean, it could be a matter of days or months between them, so... Maybe Moyes could have stuck around a little bit longer. He would have had that record in the books. Yeah. <laughs> but that puts us five out of seven. Question eight. This is one that we always do uh, with everyone. Apart from England, which nationality is most represented in the current Everton first team squad, including players out on loan? So obviously the majority of players are from England. Um, who are the second most? Oh, That's a good question. Yeah, it always catches them out this way. Yeah. Um, it can't be that many either. I'm trying to think. <laughs> That's the thing. That's what makes it harder. Sometimes it's okay because you, you do a team where there's sort of like a big contingent yeah. like, coming second. But Everton's like one of those teams where there's sort of England and then it's a, a lot of just little twos and ones threes. and twos here, there, exactly. Uh, trying to go through the teams. I think there's a couple of Brazilians... French, uh, I think Irish in there. Um, just to re- just to repeat, including players who are out on loan. Little tip for you there. Ah, right. <laughs> I had to put that technicality in there because otherwise I couldn't separate the the countries. Oh, right. There's only one way of. Um, oh, that could. Oh, I was thinking, yeah, because that could really. Uh... Because we've got so many different players on loan as well. Um, let me think. I'm going to go with uh, French. Correct. <laughs> it is France with three. Abdoulaye Decoré, Lucas Dean and Niels Nkuku is on loan at standard Lee uh, age. Yeah, of course. I yeah. had to include that. Normally, I'd, I'd, I'd just sort of leave out the loan players if there's a clear winner. But because Brazil also have Alan and Richarlison. Yeah. The only way we could have a clear winner was to include the lone players, and Niels and Kunku is the wild card. And... <laughs> He's the type. That's, a good <laughs> That's why France have the most. So that gives you six out of eight. Very respectable score indeed, uh, especially because some of those were really. I, I'm surprised that you got the Lineker one. I thought I'd really got you with that one, especially <laughs> with him being there for one year. I thought you'd be thinking of I don't know the '80s legends who were there for the whole period, and but no. Anyway, Tom. So, so good to speak to you today. Um, before you go, could you tell the listeners where they can check out your, your writing or, or any other work you're doing, whether it's Royal Blue Mersey or, or otherwise? Yeah, so, um, yeah, write for the Everton blog, Royal Blue Mersey. So it's royalbluemersey.sbnation.com. Um, and, yeah, I'm also a, a freelance journalist in, in my uh, my career as well. So you'll see me around off different places i uh, do a lot for bbc bbc so you might see me on bbc football bbc cricket every now and then um but yeah my name tends to pop up in different places but yeah certainly for the everton content um yeah check out royal blue mersey and uh, there's a good group of guys there and uh yeah we uh just following everton and yeah say the site's been going for over 10 years now it's been up and down but um you know we're always positive and you never know what's around the corner So Everton fans, check it out. Neutral football fans in general, check out Tom's content. And Tom, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. No problem. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much, buddy. Best of luck with the season. Hopefully um, you'll get back onto a good run soon and uh, start getting up there towards those European places again. Fingers crossed. Let's hope so. Cheers. Thanks, buddy. Have a good one. No problem. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Craig. Thanks so much for listening to the Sportscast Football Stories podcast. Please like, share and leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. This is crucial to a show of our size. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend online or offline. That really helps a small podcast like ours to grow organically. Head to sportacost.com for live streams, data, statistics and much more from the world of football. You can also follow us on Twitter at sportacost.com. You can follow myself at Craig Sportacost. And we'd also love to read out the thoughts and questions of our listeners. So please feel free to tweet those to me anytime or send us an email to show at sportacost.com with your opinions or your questions and we'll get to those on the next episode. Thanks again to Tom for coming on to speak to us today. Thanks so much to you for listening and see you on the next episode of the Sportacost Football Stories podcast. 
Social Podcast Network.